Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to El Paso Bible Church. Uh, another morning service. It's good to see you guys. And uh, I had a wisdom truth extraction last Wednesday, so <laughs> can't really articulate my words. Um, so just uh, going down the bulletin, a few announcements. We have a women's ministry meeting uh, Saturday, March 2nd. And this is at 10 a.m. in Building B, women's ministry meeting. Uh, we also have our men's breakfast coming up March the 9th. We'd love to see you guys attend. Um, really a time of encouragement. We get to pray for each other and uh, study scripture. Uh, March 9th, that's at 8 a.m. And this also happens in the new building. Uh, I think that's it for announcements as far as I could tell here. Uh, I am reading out of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those. My EQ is changing all of a sudden. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we uh, will have our time of worship. Uh, Father, we are thankful this morning. Uh, thank you for life. Thank you for health. And we do think of uh, those in our church body that are ill and that are sick in our home. Uh, we ask that you comfort them. We ask that you strengthen them. Uh, we understand that life is fragile. Um, health is fragile even. Uh, and it makes us uh, desire the glory to come. We ask that you bless our time as we worship you. And as we um, just are encouraged by the teaching of your word. That you placed in Pastor Josh's heart. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? It's there in the newborn cry There in the light of every sunrise 
There in the shadows of this life Your great grace Is there on the mountain top There in the everyday and the mundane There in the sorrow and the dancing Your great grace Oh, such grace From the creation to the cross There from the cross into eternity
God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds a victory. Yeah. His mercy is more 
patient all knowing he counts not this sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the
Well, good morning. Glad to see you all today. Happy to be here myself after I spent a little bit of time at the dentist myself. You know how that goes, right? You never think you're going to make it, depending on how much they're doing. Uh, but children, you guys can go to Children's Church. We have that today for you. I'm out of sorts today. You'll notice that I don't have Big Bertha with me today. My normal Bible, I left it at home. Can you believe that? The pastor left his Bible at home. Good thing I have about 40 of them in my office. So we're good. We're good. We're going to make it, guys. But I'm a little bit off kilter today, uh, as you probably can understand. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, I'm not sure if it's in the bulletin or not, uh, but uh, we are having a baptism service on Palm Sunday. It's become kind of our tradition. Uh, so that'll be March 24th. If you haven't been baptized since you trusted in Christ, uh, we, we do practice believer's baptism at El Paso Bible Church by immersion, uh, which means that we are going to put you under the water and you need to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, so if you haven't done that, or children, if you haven't done that, or you have children that haven't done that since I dismissed them already, um, and they want to get baptized, just let me know. Um, we don't have the same slot for a baptism class that we've had before because I'm, I'm getting ready to perform ceremony, wedding ceremonies for some of the kids I baptized. So we're stuck there. We're happy about that. But, you know, scheduling conflicts, right? Um, but so do that. Please let me know. Uh, guys, make sure that you sign up. I don't have the clipboard up here for the men's breakfast, but we do need to know how many po- folks roughly are going to be there. So we're getting to the end here. I'm getting to the end of Second Peter. Not a long book, truth be told. Uh, but we'll, we have one more message in Second Peter after today. But we're continuing... Uh, to discuss growing in grace, growing in grace, in favor. Uh, That's the big topic that we've been covering uh, as Peter has been inspired, right? That's one of the key verses in 2 Peter, actually, is the inspiration of God's Word, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that men moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's the nature of inspiration. And Peter, in his inspired work, here to create an inspired text by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has taught us these things about growing in grace. Now that's something that does require our participation. Uh, Sometimes I get some argument about this. Um, Lots of people who are wrong argue with me. That's not abnormal. Uh, But growing in, (laughs) y'all laughing, it's not really a joke. Lots of people who are wrong argue with me all the time. the nature of the epistle is such, and we can't argue this point, that it requires our participation. And in the very last verses we'll look at next week, he says, this is growing in grace. We don't get to argue that point. What we need to understand is what growing in grace means, right? Uh, on two opposite ends of the, of the theological spectrum, I would say, uh, people don't understand grace to have anything like that in the definition. Um, Growing in grace is something that we need to talk about. We, we have talked about it. In one application of the way Scripture talks about God's grace, it has nothing to do with your participation. Right? What we call justification. justification. You don't add anything. You don't do anything. You simply believe God grants you a free gift. But you need to, and there's no but. It's an and. And God's grace is manifold. That's an old theological term that you mechanics will understand. You know what a manifold is? 
It's just like a hose, right? One go, it goes in one end and comes out the other. Just one, right? No. It has one entrance usually. And it has a distribution, right? You can buy them for gas lines. You can buy them for pecs. Y'all use pecs. Makes everybody a great plumber all of a sudden. Your vehicles have multiple manifolds, intake manifolds, all those things, right? Something that goes in one way and gets spread out. God's grace, Scripture says, is manifold. And so the great, you don't stop experiencing God's grace when you're a believer. He does not ask you to do something that he hasn't provided for you to do. That's what we talked about in the first part of 2 Peter, right? God's grace grants us everything that we need for life and godliness. And then he legitimately and rightfully makes a demand upon us that the things that he manufactured, the things that he provided us, we then supply, right? Life and godliness. Do these things. Long list. You can go back and listen to that message. It's a few months old now. But it's there. That's part of God's manifold grace to us. That he grows us in discernment and wisdom, perseverance, endurance, so that, the way James says, so that we're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's nothing that we face that we can't understand the provision of God to to have victory over. That's difficult. Isn't the last few years been a lesson in feeling overwhelmed? More More than probably... Any other three or four years in my life. I, I was talking to my class this morning. I was like, guys, listen, you think you've been overwhelmed before. You're about to get married. The dump truck is going to back up at some point on you. That is going to happen. Let me explain. And then we go over my short testimony of our first year of marriage. I forgot my wife's hospital stay. In addition, folks who were in my class, my wife was in the hospital for nine weeks in that first year of our marriage. God has granted all of us. Everything, everything that we need for life and godliness, if we rely upon him for it, believe him for it, believe that truth of what he's done about his manifold grace. And so he says here, to grow in grace, this is what we do. To take the things he's given us for life and godliness and to apply them. If you don't, guess what? You still get to go to heaven when you die. Because the gift is irrevocable. The gift is permanent. transforms you. It's better for you, though, to understand the manifold grace of God and to apply it in your life. Is that clear? People get confused here because they have a deficient view of what God's grace is. I've had people walk down this aisle and tell me, so you don't believe in eternal security, do you? Of all the things I believe, folks, all the things that I'm right about, right? I'm the most right about that. So do not understand that qualification have anything to do with your eternal security, the fact that you're an irrevocable, unchangeable child of God, that you can never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, even by your own dang foolish self. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know how many of y'all consider yourselves dang fools, but I'll raise my hand. I've been a dang fool sometimes. If I could have lost it, I would have lost it. Over and over and over. 
probably by this morning, if not before. But knowing these things about what God has given to us enables us to know our purpose in this life. That helps with that overwhelming feeling, yes, to know our purpose, to narrow all the things that our purpose is not. Most of the things are not your purpose in the world. Most of the things that the news tells you you've got a problem to solve aren't your problem. Most of the things that most of the church in the world today tells you is your problem or not your problem. Because most of the church says that you're supposed to be building Christ's kingdom on this earth. Christ will do that. That's not your burden. So don't get uptight about it. But we need to understand our purpose, to discern our gifts, to discern how to apply the things that God has given us by his grace, to discern false teaching from biblical teaching, to discern what is God's word and what is a false teacher's manipulation. We'll talk about that some more today. To discern loving Instruction from God's word from a father to his children from malicious manipulation from somebody who wants to destroy your life. Grace does that. It allows us to understand our time so that we know that we are living in the last days, the last days to come before the last day. You know the difference. The church has always existed in the last days and we're moving towards the last day. That's how that goes. I know all your paperbacks say something different. You might as well chunk them because, again, we went over that. I'm right. They're wrong. (laughs) The church is always in the last days, always. No exception. It's a last day's environment, last day's entity. So the last days, we know that. We have mockers mocking. Anybody want to question that symptom? This isn't... This isn't like a pandemic, right? What wasn't a COVID symptom? Was anything not a COVID symptom eventually? Well, listen, the mockers mocking. One of the clearest symptoms, the mocking is growing more and more and more and more intense by people that you would not expect, people who still want to claim the name of Christ, but who want to deny the power and the truthfulness and the clarity of Scripture entirely. Those aren't people those aren't people from outside. Those are members of churches all over the globe that are writing those books and saying those things and teaching those things and wanting to manipulate and modify the way the local church operates and the way the Bible is taught. I don't care what Congress thinks about the Bible. Really. I expect those idiots to be full of crap. But when we understand that these attacks are rising from among us, then you know, then that's last day's stuff. We know that men like that will be confronted by the kingdom. That the kingdom will come upon them, confronted with hostility. Knowing that the Lord is not slow but is patient. 
You know the difference, right? I grew up around people that talk slow. Grew up in Texas, grew up in the South. You know somebody like that. Yes? Slow. Can't quite get it all out. It's like Lord, you know, Lord of the Rings fans. It's like Entish. Whenever they're speaking, it takes a long time to say anything in old Entish. That'll make you impatient, right? God is being patient, not slow. Things are moving forward. He's not slow, and he's being patient with us, with us, so that we would have the greatest opportunity to achieve our purpose in this life. And we can know by God's grace and his revelation to us that the last day is coming, that the day of the Lord is coming, a day of fire, a day of judgment, of confrontation, melting by which the, the present heavens and the present earth are replaced by the new. Now, occasionally, you guys are eschatology buffs, some of you. And you want me, every time eschatology is mentioned everywhere in the Bible, to teach you an entire systematic theology lesson in class. You want me to spend 15 weeks and get out the charts, because dispensationalists have big charts. We have the best charts. Whatever else we have, we have the best charts. No amens, but we do. We have the best charts of all. But that's simply not the way Scripture is put together. We're going to teach Scripture as it is revealed. We can teach other things, topics, those kind of things, but understand systematic theology is a topical teaching. That's not what we do first and foremost here. We teach the Bible as it was revealed. So all of the pieces aren't. But we know that the day is coming that will confront the mockers and their mocking. They will be destroyed. So we're getting to the last few verses of this wonderful book. And here we have my favorite word in the whole New Testament, therefore. Because then I get to say, we're not going to say the thing that everybody says when we get to therefore. In fact, I almost want to retranslate it and say, for this reason. So then we're not tempted to say, what's the therefore, therefore. I don't know why that puts a bee under my bonnet, but it has done it since I was a little kid. And I don't like it. No offense if you all do. But I'm not going to say it. For this reason, beloved, looking forward to these things, hoping for them, expecting them, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Beloved. In other words, very minimal information in here is relevant to anybody who's not a believer still. This is written to the beloved who have all of these resources for life and godliness and have a rightful expectation of their father that they would supply them. Knowing that the world that and all that is in it and all that is of it, and those are two different things. Everything in the world that is in it and of it, their identity is the world, and everything it contains will be destroyed by fire in a day to come. Knowing that, expecting it, 
since we do that, be diligent. Be diligent. First time I remember ever hearing that word, I was in seventh grade. I had barely met the young lady who had become my wife. She may have yet been 12. She was a youngster in seventh grade. We've known each other for a long time. But our homeroom teacher was fond of the word diligent. At least it seemed that way to me. Be diligent. Be diligent, boys, she would say. She was about this tall, maybe a little taller. My wife gets mad at me for my inaccurate comparison of heights on the stage. <laughs> no comment. She was not tall. Be diligent. But while we were seventh grade boys, we were diligent about whatever the heck we wanted to do at the moment. We were being diligent, but that's not what she meant. What she meant is be diligent in the things that I have declared for you to do, the things that I have demanded that you do. Focus. Don't just be busy. Because you can kick up a lot of dust being busy, but you may not get a lot done. Be diligent. Do the things that you're supposed to be doing. Be diligent. He's giving us something to do, a particular something to do. See, that's a super secret hermeneutics principle. You should expect a command after that. Be diligent. It is a command itself, but you should expect clarity. Be in peace, he says. Be diligent to be found by him in peace. See, I, had, I used to work uh, in, in a couple summers. I worked for an architectural antiques place. You know what architectural antiques are? I worked in normal antiques growing up. We restored antiques. Architectural antiques are when they take down a barn or a craftsman home and they save the cornice work and the molding and the doors and all that. They are antiques, but they're specific kinds of antiques. And they were moving at that time. And I remember my friend Luke and I were given the task of preparing the new place where nobody was. There was no boss there. It was just me and him, about 20, 21 years old, something like that. And we were working. He was going to go to medical school. I was going to go to seminary. We both ended up going uh, basically the same region of Texas to do that. Not quite neighbors, but close, right? Spent a lot of time together. And he, one time we were just discussing why it was that we were at this location and the other chuckleheads were over there almost under lock and key, <laughs> you know, almost, you know, with the boss right over him. And he said, well, you know, maybe it has to do with our philosophy, John. I think you and I both do this the same way, that we work our hardest when the boss isn't here. We work our hardest when the boss isn't here so that when he comes, then we can show him what we did. Those guys only work when the boss is watching them. You understand the difference? So Jesus told many parables about stewards, didn't he? One of them was the boss is going off, the master is going off to a far country, he's going to come back. We are going to be found by him doing something. And Peter says, be diligent 
on this bridge to be found in peace. Now here's another one where people got to get their vocabulary straight. They think peace only means one thing, the same way they think grace only means one thing. Are you at peace right now? If I ask you that question, you should ask another question right afterwards. At peace with whom? Right? Are you at peace? Scripture says, yes, if you're a believer in relation to God the Father. You are reconciled to God. You are at peace with God. He no longer is hostile towards you. There's no hostile action that you have to anticipate. Hostile, that's a different thing than discipline, maturity, those things. No hostility. But in peace, you can actually look that up and with that prepositional phrase, in peace, that's a dative of sphere, as I see it, if you care. Like some people care about the, the, the cases of the nouns. Say, be diligent to be found by him in a sphere of peace. In other words, you should have a bubble right around you. You should be at peace with other people. You know, people walk around with two chips on each shoulder. No? Yeah, you do, you liars. You know people with two chips on each shoulder. They should bounce off your peace bubble because it's so profound. Because you don't let it in. You don't let your life be ruined because somebody else can't manage to live at peace and in peace with other people. Dative of spear, be in peace. The, the 14 times of that prepositional phrase, that's what it means. It's about human relationships. It has nothing to do with God. When Scripture has different ways of describing what happens to you as a child of God when you are reconciled to God. So one is statutory. You're at peace with God when you're reconciled to him as a believer. One is something you've got to participate in. In other words, you need to decide today to be peaceable and to establish a perimeter of peacefulness around you. It's a matter of diligence. Now sometimes that means kind of making a checklist. Who are you going to let in your life? Who are you going to let have input into how your day is going to go? Y'all do that, yeah? It might be how much social media you imbibe every day. Probably is. Probably is for almost all of us. It may be that certain people don't have access at all. That may be. I've had to make that decision more than I'd, I would like. Be diligent to be found in peace in your human relationships when Christ comes for us. It's about our walk. It's about the way we, we live Paul seems to refer to something similar when he says that God has granted to us a ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18, that we have a responsibility to be reconciled to others and to show them how to be reconciled to God. I think that's all included. 
But it means specifically in this context, we don't get agitated by mockers in their mocking, by the false teachers that are around us. We know that that's the symptom. That's not actually the problem. They're not the problem. They're, they're the sneeze. You know that a sneeze is not an illness? Sneeze is a symptom of a lot of illnesses. The false teachers are just the sneeze. Some of them are sloppier than others. That's not the problem. The problem is sin in the world. The problem is the lack of the new heaven and the new earth. The problem is the lack of a righteous kingdom into eternity. That's going to be resolved. There'll be no more of those sneezes in eternity. He says, be at peace. Be diligent to be found at peace, spotless and blameless. Now, again, we have to delineate between what is true by declaration, right, and what is true uh, with our participation, right? This is being diligent, right? Being diligent is an action. There's an action that follows that. That means you're going to participate in it. Be in peace. Be spotless. Be blameless. Statutorily, your identity is spotless and blameless, is it not? You have been declared in Christ. You are wearing his righteousness. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed in Christ for Pete's sake. So why aren't you perfect? You still live here. You're still in flesh. They can't maintain the glory that is in the future. You couldn't tolerate it. All sorts of theological reasons, biblical reasons for it. He says, be diligent about being spotless and blameless. Do the best you can and confess when you fail. Does that make sense? That's how God has always structured it. Your identity has always been determined by faith. Even in the Old Testament, they believed God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. And we can point to many places throughout the Old Testament where that was true, that that determined their identity. And a lot of people say something stupid, that the law was not grace. The law was grace. It did not justify anybody, but it was something in which to grow. And it included confession. People ask, why all those sacrifices? Why all the blood? Every single time was a confession of sin. I recognize that I have sinned. That's how the law said. For people whose identity was transformed by that imputed righteousness to be spotless and blameless. Basically keep a short list of things that were confessed and forgiven. Walking in faith, by faith, in step with the Spirit. All things Scripture says in the New Testament for us to do. Part of that, like doing all these things, considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, now, we made a, a, 
a demarcation, right, between what is commonly understood about God's patience in this passage. Who is God being patient with in 2 Peter? I mean, you, the believers. He's being patient with us. But pastor, I thought I was already saved. This here says that you should view the patience of God as salvation. I thought I was already saved, Pastor. Do I have to wait still? Do I have to make sure that God is still patient with me so that I get to go to heaven when I die? No. We've talked about the nature of the word grace. We've talked about the nature of the word peace. But you guys know, you people have been here for a while at El Paso Bible Church and know for sure this one, right? When we see the word save or salvation, the first question that comes to mind is from what or from who? From whom? Who? Who? Who slash whom in these days of grammatical ambiguity? How about that? I think it's whom. Save from what? Hmm. Well, it's the same people who God is being patient with, as I see it. He's being patient with you and with me. So what is God saving us from? As believers in Jesus Christ who have a perfect identity in him whose destiny is absolutely secured into eternity. What is God saving us from with his patience? Our bad stewardship. (laughs) Missed opportunities, our failures. I'm sorry? Are are you okay? Okay. Potentially, our, our fellowship, some people would say. Providing us with opportunity to make our lives matter. God tells us in the word, right, that we will be, that our faithfulness will be assessed. It will be. Some people will have nothing to be assessed. They will still be saved, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 3, as if by fire. I think I've told you this before. One time when we were fairly newly married, I got into bed and my wife says, uh, you smell like smoked chicken. I had been smoking chicken. And I said, I'm sorry. She said, I didn't say it was bad. She likes smoked chicken. Maybe it smelled better than I normally did. It's not a good smoke, right? Saved as if by fire. God's patience allows us more and more opportunity to avail ourselves of growing in grace, of growing in the things that he's given us, to experience the benefits of it, to live our life on task, on purpose. He is saving us. Thankfully, I'm not the only one who may have spent five or ten minutes not on task. That's a joke, folks. I'm sure you spend more than five or ten minutes not on that. You don't even probably have the ADD that I have probably, right? I I spend my day on a thousand tasks if I'm not careful. God's patience provides us an opportunity to resolve that to some degree. To provide us with more and more opportunities 
to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. It's deliverance. Save us from our failure to focus, failure to prioritize, failure to serve the way that we should. But he says something about Paul here. They were buddies. Can you believe that? Two people in church leadership that were friends. And they even survived conflict. Paul got up in Peter's face the way that most people just flat won't do. Just read Galatians. And oh my goodness, Peter repented. And their relationship was restored. Mind blown. You know how many pastors I know that say if I confront somebody about some sinful behavior they have in the church, they're just going to go down the road? Happens a lot. I would say it does happen. There's two sides to that. Folks, if you join El Paso Bible Church, you sign on the dotted line that says that you're going to accept correction, actually. Now, we don't get up in everybody's business every time, you know, you need to shave or something, you know. But an actual legitimate sin issue that is affecting the body of Christ That takes two to tango, right, for the church to survive that. And guys, by the way, it shouldn't be only me that has to do that. Some, some people end up being tattletales. Can I say, did you, did you have a sibling that was a tattletale? Ma'am, come fix my problems. Lots of people in the church come to the pastor, come fix my problem. It isn't my problem yet, usually. It's your problem, so grow a spine and deal with it. Scripture says that you have the capacity to do that, the necessity of doing that, I think, especially if the, the sin was directly against you. But even once it becomes a, a matter of public issue or a corporate issue, I'll say, not public, We need to see it as one of the blessings and the benefits of being in a local church. That the things that are destructive in our lives don't go uncorrected or unacknowledged or uncounseled. But he has said some interesting things. We're almost done. But Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you about the same topic. And he says in verse 16, as also in all his epistles. Imagine that. Paul wrote basically most of the New Testament, and Peter says, he's my buddy, but in all his epistles, he has this problem, <laughs> in which are some things that are hard to understand. Paul, my buddy, my brother, compatriot, that guy writes some things that are hard to understand. He writes a lot. You know what you don't hear? Everybody, if anybody reads anymore, it sounds like basically they read what's called a, what they call it a graphic novel. It's a very large comic book, right? 
You know what nobody ever says about graphic novels? That. Oh, they're so hard to understand. The plot, it's so deep. I can't follow it. But when they come to the Bible, oh, I like to read, they say. Maybe you do. Come to the Bible. It's so hard to understand. There's nothing that I can understand in the Bible. That may not be true. Some people may just legitimately have a hard time with reading comprehension. But Peter says that Paul's writing a few important things. First of all, they're in the same category as Scripture. So a lot of people wonder about the apostles. Did they know they were writing the Bible? Is it legitimate to ascribe the status of Scripture to the New Testament apostles' writings if they didn't even know what they were doing? Well, this says that they did. This says that Peter acknowledged Paul's writings as Scripture. This verse. All of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of the Scriptures. So Peter puts Paul's writings right there. Did they know it? Yes, they did. But more than that, I want you to focus on this for a second. He says some things are hard to understand as they are essentially with all of Scripture. When you run into Scripture, there are some things that don't just jump off the page, especially when we've gone through this many years, this many cultural contexts, this many languages. Translation traditions, some that were good, some that were not good. Some things are hard. So this, is, this speaks to the area of doctrine that gets ignored a lot, actually, called bibliology. Bibliology, the study of the doctrine of the Bible, the study of the doctrine of the Bible. Pastor Josh, I told you, you, were, you said you weren't going to go into a systematic theology lesson. That's not exactly what I said. I said I wasn't going to teach a whole eschatology class every time the day of the Lord was mentioned in Scripture. But we're going to talk about this a little bit. Because bibliology, one of the most important principles that is, that is necessary when you understand the doctrine of the Bible, and one I think that is at the root of why it's so ignored these days, is what we call perspicuity. Don't you love that word? It's not even that long, and everybody looks at me like I'm an absolute nut when I say the word perspicuity of Scripture. Anybody know what that means? This is why I love saying it. Perspicuity of Scripture means clarity of Scripture. Now, isn't that a fun way to tell people you should understand the Bible with a word they've never heard of? It's the most fun word in systematic theology as far as I'm concerned. You could just say clarity, but then you wouldn't get the joy of seeing people wrinkle their nose up at you and wonder what you just said. See, my kids get it from somewhere. Perspicuity of Scripture. That means that, generally speaking, clarity of Scripture uh, means that you, you can grasp the message of the Bible. You can grasp the lessons, the teachings, the message of the Bible yourself. If it can be communicated to you and you can read, you can grasp that. Now, some people take it too far and say that means that you can understand every single detail in Scripture just by simply reading it. 
And even Peter doesn't go that far. He's like, even I have trouble reading that dude. Even I have trouble reading Paul. I don't get that guy at every detail. I don't get him at every point. He's definitely writing scripture. It's definitely in the category with all of the Old Testament. It's definitely that, but I don't get it all. I'm so thankful for Peter. <laughs> Aren't you? Now, there's some things I don't get, and I've spent a lot of time being taught how to get it. A lot of time. And doing it myself. But perspicuity means you can get the main message. It doesn't mean that there's no difficulties or no harmonization that is necessary. Some things are difficult, and that's okay. That's okay. But there's an issue with a bibliological issue. It's a lot of syllables. Bibliological issue here, and that is what people do when they don't understand the details. See, when you have somebody and they say, I don't understand all of the details, that's how it should sound. I don't know. I don't understand all the details and neither did Peter and Peter said so. I'm working on it and I may understand one day. I may get it. I may figure it out if I am diligent to ignoring the false teachers to be found in peace, spotless and blameless, and I spend my time at what I'm doing wisely. I might get it one day, but I don't know. But that's not what everybody does with it. Did you catch that? They're hard to understand, which untaught, it's not popular to say ignorant, ignorant people and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Now, if you find somebody that finds a detail that they clearly don't understand and they write a whole book about it to tell you exactly what it means, you ought to set that thing on fire out in the parking lot because it's garbage. And this is the problem. People hold in high esteem their perception of what they think something means, difficult to understand. They think after you know, 2,000 years of church history and thousands and thousands of years of Israel's history, that suddenly no one else has understood that, but I do today. You should at least, like a grain of salt, right? Yes? At least a grain, probably a lot more. Unstable and ignorant people do that. Let's find some verse you may not have ever remembered reading. Like I can say statutorily that I have read the whole Bible multiple times in my life. You can still find me a verse that I don't remember reading. Anybody else? Somewhere. You, you can remember. You're like, I don't remember that story. I do not remember that at all. I've read it six times, but I don't remember. They'll find one of those and all of a sudden give you a little paperback book on it that tells you how it will change your life. Everybody else has been living in utter confusion and hopelessness until you came on the scene. You're a rock star, buddy. Make it their whole life and ministry verse. Happens a good bit. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. I understand it feels exciting. We talked about the nature of exciting earlier in this book. 
you choose to some degree what to be excited about and what to be bored by. <laughs> choose something else. Don't be untaught. Don't be unstable. As Peter says, the people who were stable can, some, can become unstable if they're not careful. And then you get to be the clown that does this. And I won't come to your circus. I don't even like clowns. Do you like clowns? I don't like clowns. I have friends that are professional Christian clowns, and I still don't like them when they're in their clown stuff. What the heck is a Christian clown? Don't be like that. Focus on the things that we understand. Seeking understanding of things that are difficult, yes. But loving the things that are clear and simple, as most of Scripture is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. Uh, we thank you that Peter admits that in our weakness, we don't always put together all the details perfectly throughout. But Father, we do live in expectation of the new heaven and the new earth and the things to come. We thank you for it. Thank you for the life that we have in your son simply by grace through faith, something that is our permanent, absolute possession that cannot be taken from us. Thank you for your grace. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us, church?
Sermons. Every time that choir would sing, I could hear my Savior calling.